Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 7th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, well, welcome y'all to the show, and we're excited tonight in about 20 minutes we're going to have John Ryder come back on the show and talk to us about the very fascinating state of Arizona and all the political happenings there. But until then, we're going to discuss the political topics of the day. And, you know, like last week, we're going to talk about the protest that has surrounded police brutality. Um, and, you know, obviously the flashpoint will be George Floyd's death, but it's not just his death. There are so many, unfortunately, other gentlemen um, and women that have um, suffered the same fate um, at the hands of police brutality. But it seemed like this week just overall was very different than what we saw last weekend. So many more protests, but so many more, you know, First Amendment peaceful protests on one side. But we're going to start out with the other side of that with Tim Shiflett's outrage regarding kind of what kicked off on Monday. Tim, go ahead. Flashbangs and tear gas. State sanction directed at peaceful American citizens as they exercise their First Amendment right to assembly. A White House turned into a fortress. And it all occurred on national television in the space of four days and four nights. I sat there watching with a mixture of horror and wonder. We've seen stuff like this before. I remember the similar scenes of state-sanctioned violence directed against school children down in Birmingham with fire hoses and vicious dogs. Um, I remember the beating of protesters in the streets of Chicago at the Democratic Convention in 1968. I remember the tragedy two years later of Kent State. And there's that word tragedy again. We throw it around a lot in this country, but how appropriate it has been the last couple of weeks for the needless death of George Floyd has indeed been a tragedy that has rocked this nation to its very core. And that brings us to the occupant of the White House and other times, other tragedies. We have turned to our president for leadership, to console us all, and to provide moral direction. In this way, We have been able in times past to examine, to grieve, and to patch the fabric of our democracy, moving forward stronger and more united 
Many have stated this week that this president has failed all of these tests that presidents have failed in times of crisis. I, I'm not sure I agree with that statement because, you see, you, you have to actually try something in order to fail. This president has not attempted to unite this country. He has done the exact opposite. This president has made no effort to console a grieving people. Instead, he has ridiculed state and local leaders who have not, quote, dominated the protesters all over the country. This president has not now, nor has he ever given any indication that he should or wishes to lead all the people of this country. Never has that been more apparent than the events of this week, when citizens were attacked without provocation by federal security forces within sight of the White House, the People's House. That had, by the end of the week, morphed into something reminiscent of a fortified military headquarters in a third world country. The side of all of this is almost too much to bear, almost beyond reason or believing. I've done a lot of outrage segments over the last 13 plus years of this show's existence. This one is one of the most painful. This president didn't fail. He's acting exactly like who he is. No, the failure has been with the voters in 2016 who put him in office, the Republican Party, who has become his enablers, and the brunt of the rest of us who have stood by hoping for a better day that will never come while Donald Trump remains in office. Other countries now express pity for us. Other countries now assume the moral leadership that we have abandoned. Other countries have become better countries than we are. And our president moves protesters out of the way with violent means for a photo op. I'm ashamed. I, I, I am outraged, David. Yes, it, it was the same that I don't think we've ever really witnessed where um, the president used military, and that's a combination of military and police forces, to just mow over citizens protesting, journalists reporting it. Um, you know, I mean, people going out of their way to um, run folks over with shields just so he could walk across to a church that he had gotten no permission whatsoever to use for his photo op. The the Episcopal leaders of that church are, are really not MAGA folks in any way, shape, or form. And they said they were outraged. And he actually got the Bible from inside that church without permission. They moved. Apparently there was one of the um, bishops, uh, and I don't want to use the wrong term for the Episcopal um, denomination, but they moved him out of the way. Because he was in the picture, not that he necessarily wanted to be in the picture, but he was on the front porch of the church. You know, you can't be here. It was his church. Uh, I don't know why. I mean, it was just every single facet about this was egregious. I'm going to say one more thing, then I'm going to pass it to Catherine. The night before this happened, California Senator Kamala Harris was out with the protesters um, right in front of that area. I believe it was the next night or two nights later, 
Senator Elizabeth Warren was there. I've heard, although I did not see the pictures or anything, Speaker Pelosi was out there. And today in the streets, um, Republican Utah Senator Mitt Romney was protesting. And I'm sure there's countless other senators I don't know about and haven't mentioned. Would the president have just mowed over those other constitutionally elected leaders? Would he have had no regard whatsoever for the person that's two heartbeats away from his job, Speaker Pelosi, if she'd have been out there, would they just ran him over? Or would their security details have gotten involved in some way? <laughs> I think it's a fascinating question. Um, what would have happened when the rubber met the road? Catherine, what are your thoughts? It's just, it's just tragic. Um, like Tim, you know, I've uh, I've been around a long time, and I've seen uh, a lot of protests. I've seen a lot of a lot of Black Americans uh, brutalized uh, on in the news and heard about it from my black friends and I just am um, heartbroken that we have that I, 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 I truly believe that because of this president um, these hateful this hateful behavior has been emboldened again in our country and my only the only glimmer of hope I have is that it seems like people are responding in a different way and across the board that um, white people of all stripes are uh, upset by this, conservatives, uh, liberals, you know, young, old, I think. um, And I think that's, partly because of of the way the president has responded to this, but also that it's just ravaging our communities and we just can't we can't stop we can't let we can't let this momentum stop us from um, electing people and continuing to protest and continuing to fight this fight because I think this is our chance and I think we have I think there is uh, some hope now that we can actually affect some kind of change, and um, that's my—that's the only glimmer of hope I have. But this president is just—he is—he—he is just—I mean, we've known all along that he's incompetent and he's, um, you know, just unprepared. But this—this—this this, this week exposed his the absolute worst of him and also mm-hmm. that the people around him uh, have, have don't have consciences either. I mean, the fact that those, um, those military police were actually did what they were instructed to do is also kind of scary. And um, I don't know, the whole thing is, it's just tragic. And I, like I said, I hope that this, is uh, um, is I hope that this is going to have an impact, ultimately. David? Yeah, it, David. it was definitely, uh, um, 
some of the police actions were definitely uh, very scary. The one in Buffalo where the 75-year-old gentleman with absolutely uh, no weapons, not a clenched fist, not menacing in any way, was just brutally knocked to the ground, and no one checked on him. And then the two officers that were the most responsible, and the one guy that pushed him, I felt he was very responsible because I think the other guy with the billy club actually tried to stop, and another guy was like, don't. And then I was like, well, maybe that guy should have been uh, the one fired, but I, I don't know exactly the three, yeah. which ones. But when they when they fired those two police officers, 57 other – actually, I'll tell you back, they did not fire them because the mayor of Buffalo said they deserved their due process like anybody else, but they were put on suspension. Um, however, all that works out with the union contracts. But 57 other Buffalo police quit in protest, and I don't see how anybody could possibly watch that video and not think – that those officers, both the ones that knocked him over and the ones that just had no regard to stop to check on this obviously bleeding gentleman. And the last time I read the report, he was still in the hospital um, in, in, you know, pretty serious condition. Tim? Yeah, well, I was going to hit you with the tough question, uh, mainly because it's your show, ha, ha, ha. But is this the seminal moment. Is it? I, I don't know. It's it's kind of basically how people react to this. What is the reaction? And I think both sides are trying to shock people, um, you know, in their way. Because, like, you know, if you look over on Fox News or look over on their website, and I really haven't looked on their TV. I've just seen reports. I have, I think, looked at their homepage you know they want to focus on you know the negative actions out of this and really this week there's been far less of them you know you take away uh some of the organized you know and i don't even call them looters because i think they're kind of like they've got a little organizational thing with some duffel bags in the stores in new york city if you take that away there's really not been a lot of negative actions it's been overwhelmingly positive protest actions and so I think it's how Americans react. We wondered with poll numbers what would happen. Well, we've seen multiple polls. We've also seen how Joe Biden himself would react. He um, went down to a, a protest in Wilmington, Delaware. He went to a Philadelphia church, gave a speech, really a short but a, but a pretty good speech um, on the subject, what a president would do. I mean we have Donald Trump's Monday night speech where he gave it, there'll be law and order, and then – they ran through, and he awkwardly posted the Bible. Then we hear Joe Biden's speech talking about how people need to come together, listen together, and under, uh, you know understand each other. And I have to think, where some people may not agree with Joe Biden on each issue, I would think, by and large, the American people would be a lot closer to what Joe Biden said than what Donald Trump said. And those two speeches, which in both cases, neither one were trying to actually make a policy. It was more of a bully pulpit inspirational moment this is how i see this and you know joe biden won the week on that situation based on the polls i mean later in the week you know donald trump put out some deflated unemployment numbers you know they were cooked by at least three points and what did he say he said oh george floyd would be proud of these unemployment numbers oh my god just have a gut feeling that george <laughs> floyd probably wasn't following employment factors when he was 
um, alive and certainly in his um, memory and legacy. I don't think anybody in his family is um, wondering about the employment numbers uh, like Donald Trump is. So uh, that was just so mm. tone deaf as well. Um, so that's my, you know, you know, long that answer, was Tim. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say that those who have spoke out against this uh, in the past week are, are an interesting group. you got Pat Robertson. I mean, you know, Pat Robertson doesn't yeah. do that. Well, well, he criticized this president for that move. He said it's terrible and he shouldn't have done it. Former military leaders who, who even as former military leaders try to be as apolitical as they can be, and many, including many who actually worked in this administration in some capacity, have almost universally criticized this president for using our security forces in such a way. Uh, they're, they're even having trouble with Melania Trump. Did y'all see that? On Twitter, on her Twitter account, she's talking about peace and love and stuff like that. While Trump's over there hollering, let's dominate them, let's stop them. And the West Wing apparently is not real happy with the First Lady about it. I, I don't see uh, – the, the American people have a history of taking a dim view of, you know, of state-sanctioned violence against citizens who are just standing there doing nothing and not breaking any laws. As a matter of fact, they are executing their rights under the Constitution of the United States. Uh, people are going to re- this. This is one thing that people are going to remember. They they are. They're not going to forget this one. Yeah. Well, let's get into that laundry list that's happened this week. Um, Jim Mattis, a member of Donald Trump's cabinet, mm-hmm. that we know was not lock and step. With Donald Trump uh, when he left, but he actually spoke out, um, you know, and pretty much said, you know, Donald Trump was 100 percent wrong. Colin, Colin Powell, uh, a former, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Bush cabinet member, was in the military under George uh, H. Probably under the military under many presidents, but was a um, significant uh, general under the first George Bush. He came out and said, not only am I not supporting George Bush, I mean, I'm not supporting uh, Donald Trump, I'm supporting and voting for Joe Biden. Lisa Murkowski, senator from um, Alaska, spoke out to the point where Donald Trump's already said he's going to campaign against her. Mitt Romney today in the protest march. We, this could move mm-hmm. further. Jeb Bush, he's been pushed so far. He's become a Green Party member, it sounds like, or he's going to have a joint event <laughs> um, with the Green Party, which is kind of in, intriguing its own. And then probably the biggest one of all, the only living Republican president said he will not vote for Donald Trump. That means I, I can't see any other way around it, knowing who Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama are, that no single former president will vote for Donald Trump for reelection. Catherine, of all those Republican names, and I may even miss some, which one do you think is the most stunning or will have the most impact um, for Joe Biden? Um, well, I think, um, George W. Bush is probably, for him to be outspoken and, um, I think that's probably the biggest 
um, impact of the of the bunch, but I, I think it, all together, it's um, those are important names, and um, I also, I think Colin Powell is um, also he's always been so. Um, sort of I mean I wouldn't be surprised to learn if he didn't vote for Trump in 2016 honestly but um, I, I think that he's also a, a pretty impressive man and uh, for him to come out so uh, to be so outspoken about it I think is also important and um And and could have an effect. Yes. Well, now we're going to turn our attention uh, to Arizona and welcome into our guest for the second time to the Kudzu Vine. Welcome, Mr. John Ryder. Uh, good afternoon, David. How are you? Yes. Oh, doing good. Hope you are. Uh, doing well, yes. Thank you. Yes. Well, um, I tell you uh, – If you'd have told me eight years ago, 12 years ago, that the state of Arizona was going to become one of the biggest battlegrounds in the next two to three cycles, I would have actually been floored. But I'd have to say that Arizona is right there. Uh, Your state has trended so fast, so quick, faster than Texas and Georgia and South Carolina and all the rest of those Sunbelt states that people saw as moving. It's just blown by um, uh, uh, Ohio and and probably a Florida as well, possibly. Why has that occurred to where Arizona is moving so far so fast um, from the Republican to the Democratic column? Well, I think we've, uh, we've put a lot of effort into, uh, we've put a lot of effort into moving Arizona uh, in a different direction, and um, both at the state level uh, and at the federal level, um, you know, our, the party and, and candidates have, have done a lot to move the state, uh, move the state in the democratic direction. Um, in addition to that, we have a significant uh, population uh, increase. From I mean, Arizona is one of the largest uh, places where Californians uh, choose to move. Um, and so the, the largest number of people moving to Arizona now is from California rather than from the Midwest. So uh, that, that's a significant change over the past several decades. Um, and, and Maricopa County, which is the, uh, the largest county in the state, in fact, it's the, the fourth most populous county in the United States with four and a half million people, uh, the home of Phoenix and, and most of the Phoenix metropolitan area, um, is is officially sort of the the largest battleground state b- battleground county in the in the United States. Mm. Yes. Well, before I get you to break down that state, now I did hear this in the past that um, Californians obviously move a lot to Arizona. They moved to Nevada, and they also moved to Texas. Now, in uh, 2018, Beto O'Rourke won native Texans, but lost move-in Texans. And a lot of people said that the Californians that moved into Texas were very conservative. 
um, and they were former Republicans that used to – or they're still Republican. They just took their Republican votes from the minority of California into the majority of Texas. Is it that the, a different type of Californians moving to Arizona? I think we're seeing a mix of Californians, both uh, traditional, older, more conservative Californians, and maybe uh, in addition to that, we're seeing a lot of younger Californians uh, who are moving here for, for jobs. Uh, uh, the tech industry, especially in California, has moved into Arizona, especially the metropolitan Phoenix area, rather aggressively. And so a lot of younger folks are uh, coming to to Arizona from California as well. Um and I think not only as uh, not only as employees directly, but many younger Californians are also coming to Arizona. Um, Arizona State University is now the largest university in the United States and has the largest engineering school in the United States. Um, so we're seeing a significant demographic uh, change from an older, more conservative uh, population to a much more diverse population today. Yes. Well, one final question. Um, you know, I've never been to Arizona, never been lucky enough. You send me a plane ticket or gas money, I'll come. But um, I know that Phoenix is there. I know Tucson's there, and I know there's a lot of sand and sun. For the non-native or person that's just not been lucky enough to come to Arizona, how, do, how does a, a Democrat or Republican win Arizona? Uh, well, demographically, Arizona is uh, – there are 15 counties here, but the, 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 the big gorilla is Maricopa County. With four and a, The state has almost 7.5 million people, but Maricopa County has about 4.5 million um, of that. Uh, to, the Tucson area has about a million, and then the rest, uh, the rest are scattered around the state, um, including in places like Flagstaff and Yuma and, and stuff. But um, – in order to win Mar- in order to win Arizona, you have to win Maricopa County, which historically was a Republican-leaning county. It was always a, a fairly safe Republican county, um, both for federal candidates and for state candidates. Uh, but this 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 area, the metro area of Phoenix, has definitely been trending uh, to the middle and maybe a little bit to the left of the middle lately. Um, it's especially true that uh, suburban women. Uh, which make up a, a huge, uh, huge voting block, have have voted overwhelmingly Democratic in the past several cycles, and that's why Kirsten Sinema uh, was able to win the Senate seat in uh, 2018. Uh, we had not won Democrats had not won a Senate seat in Arizona since I believe it was 1988. Prior to that, so uh, you know there's there's been a significant uh, change, um, and it doesn't it doesn't hurt. Uh, Democrats' chances that Republicans um, Republicans are, are continuing to tout policies which are becoming less and less popular. So that, especially with younger, more educated voters and with women, that certainly doesn't doesn't hurt Democrats' chances. And it certainly does hurt Republican chances. Yes. Well, I'm gonna pass this uh, over to Catherine, who have more questions. She'll pass it to Tim, and I think they'll bring it back to me, and I may have one final question or two. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. We appreciate it. Um, I hope that things are going well for you in Arizona. I wanted to I, I, I want to ask you a couple sort of general questions. First of all, um, have there been any um, Black Lives Matter protests in Arizona? And if so, how have they been um, received? Have there been any 
um, you know, enforcement uh, versus safety matters uh, happening in Arizona? Yeah, uh, good afternoon, Catherine. Um, So, yeah, there have been uh, protests here in Arizona over the past uh, 10 days or so um, since the the news about uh, George Floyd broke and uh, has become such an issue across the country. most of the most of the protests in in Arizona have taken place um, in and around Phoenix, primarily in downtown Phoenix. Uh, some in Tucson, some in other cities as well. Uh, by and large, the protests here have been uh, have been relatively peaceful. Um, in Phoenix, some some broken windows of uh, government buildings early on, but the past the past four or five days, I believe, have been um, entirely peaceful here. Uh, last weekend, there was an incident in, uh, in Scottsdale, which is a suburb of Phoenix. Um, uh, an upscale mall called Scottsdale Fashion Square was, uh, was targeted for vandalism and looting. Um, as it turns out, however, um, it, was, uh, it seems that the, the instigators of that, uh, it was all over social media for young people to come to, come to that mall and loot and vandalize. Uh, but as it turns out, it seems that there were um, a number of uh, young white folks, they were mostly in their teens and 20s, who instigated that. Um, and while there were, there were people of all ethnicities involved, it was a, it was a largely young white crowd. Um, and so that really had nothing to do with the protests um, right, in, in yeah. Phoenix. And, um, it, but it caused, you know, it caused an awful lot of uh, anxiety. And, um, and so we've, we've been under a statewide curfew um, every night since then, um, from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m., and, and that that curfew expires uh, at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning if it's not if it's not extended by the governor. Hmm. And have the police been um, behaving? Um, yeah, I would. Well, yeah, I would, <laughs> yeah, I would say unlike what we've seen in many places with uh, perhaps the police police maybe overreacting and um, and causing more problems the police here have been generally uh, have been generally hands off have been generally um, you know respecting legitimate protesters constitutional rights um, and in fact in, in well, one instance in one instance earlier this week uh, Phoenix PD office police officers actually knelt uh, knelt uh, with protesters in downtown Phoenix uh, in solidarity well, that's great. I mean, that's how. I mean, I think. I mean, it's not great that we're having these. That we that the need is there to have these um, protests, but it's a relief when the police recognize the constitutionality of it and uh, act as safety and security instead of enforcement. That's always been my sort of. You know, just protect everybody and try not to hurt anybody. Seems pretty straightforward, but seems to be difficult. Well, great. That's that's that, that's a good update on that. Now, I also wanted to ask you about uh, the coronavirus and how things are going in regards to the pandemic, and if you, you know, just sort of how that is playing out and if it has political ramifications like it does in many places. 
Uh, well, we had we uh, you know we went into lockdown uh, with the, go- the governor's executive order for locking down. We went in fairly late, towards the end of March. Um, the order came off. Uh, I forget the exact date. We've been sometime in May. The, the, the governor's executive order expired. We've been opening up the state ever since. Uh, many people think we're opening it up too quickly. Um, in the past week, we have seen uh, we've seen an incredible uh, increase in the number of new cases. Uh, a week ago, about a week ago, a week and a half ago, now we were in the 700 new cases per day range. Now we're in the 1,000 to 1,500 uh, new cases per day range. Um, mm-hmm. So it's that's causing some some concern um you know the governor and the governor and his folks are saying not nothing's to worry about here um, a lot of other people are saying that um there, there is cause for concern the the ICUs in in the hospitals in the metropolitan area of Phoenix um have now reached capacity or approximately reached capacity oh. so the, so there is some there is some concern uh with cases going up between 1000 and 1500 every day and ICUs are now at or at or just below capacity in the Phoenix metro area. Mm. And is there uh, testing widely available or not? Uh, we had several weeks of what the governor called the testing blitz. Um, I believe most people can get a test now if they want it. Uh, you know, for the first couple of months, it was almost impossible to get a test. Yeah. Um, but then we had several weeks of a testing blitz to get the numbers up. On the testing numbers up, and I, I think now if you if you have symptoms, you can get a test through your doctor's office or through public health authorities. Okay, well, mm. thank you very much for that. I'm going to pass it to Tim for some more specific political questions. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Yeah, Mr. Ryder. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Listen, listen. Uh, You've been winning a lot of races all over the place there. I, I couldn't help but notice that a lot of that has been in the last 10 years when, you know, a certain fellow with run to win came on the scene. But uh, but you've been winning a lot of races from the local level on up. But then there's Doug Ducey. He has won two races easily. Why is he bucking the trend Well, um, I think, you know, uh, (laughs) that's a good question. I think um, Mr. Ducey um, has had some good, he's had some good luck in his favor. Um, Mm -hmm. I think he, you know, he's termed out now, so when he, he he will not be running again in 2022, uh, he's termed out at that point, so... I think in terms of um, when he chose to run and under the exact circumstances he chose to run, he, he, had, a, he had a fairly uh, lucky play, I would say. Not, not, that mm-hmm. he's, not that he's unpopular, with, certainly with the Republicans he's popular. Um, and he's up until perhaps the coronavirus, and even now with the coronavirus, I would say, um, at least not yet, he hasn't made the same kind of missteps that would make him very unpopular. Uh, we may mm-hmm. we may see that happen in the next few months, but again, he's in office till 2022, so he doesn't have to worry about that. Um, mm-hmm. 
And again, running, you know, Arizona has been a reliably safe state mostly for Republicans for at least since the 1960s, 1970s. Um, so mm-hmm. de- Democrats winning at the statewide level have been very, it's been very difficult for Democrats. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, we've been, we've been doing this now. We've been working on this for 10 years quite heavily. Um, and I think mm-hmm. in 28, in 2018, you saw, we did a pretty good job uh, picking mm-hmm. up the secretary of state's race. Of course, the U S Senate race with Kirsten Sinema, mm-hmm. um state public education. Um, and we got the legislate the state house and the legislature within two seats, and I think we're gonna we're gonna pick up the state legislature at least the house in this in this election. So mm-hmm. I would say, um, Mr. Ducey, um, to his credit, wrote, ran at just the right time, um, and and may have uh, been he's probably the last Republican to have been able to win uh, the governorship. Um, fairly easily. I think it's going to be much harder for Republicans. They'll still be competitive for a while, obviously, because we're just barely getting to the point of equality between the parties. But mm-hmm. I think uh, I think he's the last Republican who could easily win the governorship. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be much more challenging now going forward. Speaking of um, easily winning, um when talking about statewide races, of course, Mark Kelly has really been running up some impressive numbers. Uh, in the polls, with his fundraising, he is just the absolute dream candidate American hero, everything clicking. Is he running strong enough to pull some other candidates across the finish line on election night, including Joe Biden? You know, I, I think that's a possibility. Um, I think uh, Ca- Captain Kelly, Mark Kelly, has has done a tremendous job at at making a case for himself. It's not, uh, you know, his entire campaign has really been about why you should vote for him, not why you should vote against anyone else. And I think we often we often lose track of that in politics. Um, oftentimes, in, in the political world, you're running against someone. And it's pretty refreshing to to see someone like Mark Kelly come along, and and give lots of good reasons why you should vote for him, rather than vote mm-hmm. against someone else. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, the, the the someone else who's going to be on the opposite side of the ticket from opposite side of the ballot from him, uh, she lost to uh, Senator McSally. Actually, lost to Kirsten Sinema in 2018, uh, and mm-hmm. she was. Uh, rather controversially, she was named to the Senate to fill out Senator John McCain's uh, term uh, by Governor Doug Ducey, uh, even though she had just lost the general election to Kirsten Sinema. Mm. So I think, uh, I, I, you know, she, <coughs> technically she's an incumbent, uh, but she never actually earned that seat, and I think that uh, that doesn't help her. Um, and then, of mm-hmm. course, Mark Kelly just uh, has a lot of good reasons why people would want to vote for him. And he's 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 ahead of her by double digits uh, across mm. the state, and he's he's handily winning Maricopa County, which, as I said, mm-hmm. you know has has 65 percent of the state's population, and uh, a Republican mm-hmm. can't possibly win the state without winning Maricopa County. Mm-hmm. Now, one out of every six Arizona residents is 65 or older. How do they seem to be breaking now in the presidential and U.S. Senate races this year? 
I think in the in the US, I know in the U.S. Senate race, uh, uh, Mark Kelly is ahead of uh, is ahead of McSally in virtually every demographic category. Wow. Um, I, be, I believe it's only among I believe it's only among uh, white men over 65 or something like that 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 Mark Kelly does not have every other demographic category. Uh, Mark Kelly is is ahead of her in. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of the presidential race, I would say uh, it's probably fairly even between the two right now because. Uh, the latest polling I've seen has Joe Biden 46 percent, uh, Trump 42 percent statewide in Arizona, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so and that was a Fox poll, I believe. Um, and mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, when it comes to folks 65 and older, they're the most likely voters. Uh, they vote at 85, 90 percent turnout. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a I think it's probably right now a statistical tie among among those voters between Biden and Trump. I will mm. say that uh, I will say that some of the uh, and that was that's a that's a population group that Trump won handily in 2016. Um, and for Joe Biden to be statistically even with him at this point um, is a is a pretty big shift. Um, and I think one of the one of the things that has played against the president with that population group is his uh, handling of the coronavirus. And that seems to be one of the issues here in Arizona that's moving older voters uh, in Biden's direction. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you one more question uh, uh, about congressional races in your state. I, I know that. That, that that Democrats have done very well in recent years, but I wanted to ask you in particular about the 6th District. Now, it's like, I don't know, an R plus 9 district in its voting history. And Dave Schweikert held the seat by 10 points in 2018 in a year that Democrats obviously did very well in congressional races. Is there any way that seat is competitive this year? Um, yes, I believe so. Arizona has done pretty well. Arizona Democrats have done pretty well in the congressional delegation. So in, in the mm-hmm. U.S. House, we hold five of, we have nine House seats. We hold, we hold five of the nine House seats currently. Um, as you said, uh, Arizona 6, which is the northeast, the, the northeastern suburbs of the Phoenix metropolitan area, um, is mm-hmm. in play this it's in play this this year. Um David Schweikert won it in twenty eighteen roughly with the party breakdown you would have expected. Mm-hmm. However however in twenty eighteen uh Kirsten Cinema won the district. Um mm. and uh and uh Paul Penzone uh, in twenty sixteen Paul Penzone won the district. He's the uh the sheriff who ousted Joe Arpaio in twenty sixteen. He's a Democrat, uh, and he won the district in 2016. So he won the district in 2016. Kirsten Cinema won the district in 2018, both of whom won the district by appealing to suburban women, especially suburban white women. Again, this is in the mm-hmm. northeastern suburbs of, of Phoenix, a relatively, uh, relatively affluent, uh, well-educated area where with a high voter turnout. Um, and we've got uh, three, I believe, three 
well, there, there are a number of Democratic contenders. We won't know who the nominee will be until August, early August, when the, the Democratic primary takes place. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would say that um, at least one of them is polling very well against uh, David Schweikert. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Mr. Schweikert has not helped himself with his continuing ethical issues um, mm-hmm. that, are still, that are still going through the House uh, ethics process. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, not only has that hurt him in terms of uh, how people perceive him, it's also hurt him financially. Um, he's not mm-hmm. been able to raise, he has not been able to raise a, a, a political war chest. Much of his money is going for, uh, for legal expenses. So, um, mm. yeah, the 6th sixth, sixth District of Arizona is now definitely in play. The, DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, DCCC, has, has said it's in play, and uh, and I think we're going to go for it. All right. Uh, well, I'm about to pass it back to David, but before I do, I wanted to say uh, the polls close late on election night, our time in Arizona, you definitely are going to be one of my 3 a.m. states that's going to keep me up watching with great interest. So uh, with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Uh, well, John, I wanted to ask you a final question. Um, you mentioned with, with Tim about y'all think y'all can flip some of your chambers and your legislature. Um, kind of what are the keys to, I don't know if the Senate and the House are both in play or one chamber or the other, but what are the keys to doing that? Well, in the in the Arizona State House, we are uh, only two seats down from uh, from mm-hmm. taking control there, um, and we've I think we I think in the past two elections we've managed to move something like eight seats in our direction. So uh, we're all we're all pretty uh, we're, 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 we think we have a really good shot at taking control of the state house uh, in this election. Um, the state senate we are three seats away. Now, the state Senate's a little bit more difficult, um, but I, but just getting the, the state house will be a, a significant chance. It'll be the first time since, I believe, 1966. I believe it was 1966 wow. was the last time the Democrats held the Arizona state house. Wow. Yes, and we know that redistricting is coming up, which it's kind of you know pretty amazing that you said out of nine districts, Democrats hold five. Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, Republicans have been more benevolent and drawing the districts. Uh, the Democratic uh, congressional races are just run so much better than the Republicans, or either the Republicans just suck at drawing districts uh, for <laughs> congressional lines. Because for them to have control, complete control and to not do any better than this is pretty amazing. Well, we, we have an independent redistricting commission here, which uh, our, our legislature – Thank God our legislature does not have the ability to directly uh, draw the to, to, to choose their own voters. Let's put it that way. Um, there's an independent <laughs> redistribution yes. for both for both congressional level and for the state legislature. You know, that it's there's still a political process. The Democrats and Republicans each get to each get to nominate people, and there's an independent on it and everything. But by and large, you're at least taking. Uh, you're taking the, the the line drawing away from the people who actually benefit, which is the sitting legislators. And I think that's the way, you know, the, the voters of Arizona are the ones who put, put that into place back in, I believe, 2000, 2001, something like that. So, um, yes, well, I, I would say, you know, we've, we've got a shot of, uh, well, we're taking, we're, the Census Bureau estimates uh, have us gaining one more congressional seat this election. 
or this this mm. next election, 2022, um, and possibly two. But we'll gain at least one House seat, U.S. House seat in 2022, and possibly two. Um, so, you know, that's it's up to the next independent redistricting commission, which is being impaneled uh, in the next year, um, to draw the lines for the for the next decade, beginning in 2022. Yes, well, fascinating. One final question. Uh, if someone's heard you tonight and they want to read you in between your appearances, uh, is there social media sources or other places they could uh, hear your thoughts or read your thoughts? Um, well, yeah. I mean, uh, you can go to go to our website. Uh, you can t- contact me through through our website. Uh, it's, it's run to win, R-I-N-T-O-T-O-W-I-N campaigns.org run to win campaigns.org uh, and you can reach me there um, and see what we're up to well thanks again John for being on the show thank you David thank you thank you all and you have a good evening thank, thank you, you very much. Right. Yes. that was uh, John Ryder our Arizona p- political expert uh, filling us in and you know the last time we had him on, I think we thought Arizona was getting interesting. It was before that 2018 election, which Kristen Cinema did flip that seat, and it's only pushed further. It reminds me kind of how quickly Virginia switched. Uh, I think Arizona may kind of be the western version of Virginia's uh, move, which was just so rapid compared to the, the turtle pace we experience in our home state. Um, <laughs> Well, let's uh, kind of talk about another big topic we wanted to discuss, and that was the political conventions. We've talked about them before, and I think until these things actually happen, we're going to continue to talk about them. But this week, um, Donald Trump said he was ready to pull uh, the convention out of Charlotte. We learned later in the week that now they're probably not going to try to pull the whole thing out of Charlotte. They may just pull his speech, and he seems to be um, you know, auctioning this off to anybody um, Phoenix was mentioned, Atlanta was mentioned, Nashville's been mentioned. Um, the state, the, the state folks in some of these places want it. The city leaders in some of these places don't. Um, Catherine, what's your thought on how Donald Trump, their RNC, and in particular uh, the leaders of Charlotte, North Carolina, are, are getting along? Oh, they don't seem to be getting along all that well. <laughs> Um, uh, preposterous uh, and irresponsible at this point to really be planning a convention. Is it supposed to be in August? Yes. I just don't see, I just don't see how any, any municipality can support that that effort in light of the pandemic and now um, the Black Lives Matter protests and all the other things that are going on. I just, I think it's irresponsible and, um, and uh, and unnecessary. I mean, we, it's not like we don't know who's going to be the selection for either of the conventions. And um, I, I just think it's irresponsible, and they should just can the whole thing, do it virtually. Yeah, I, 
give Wendy. I understand the benefits of a convention. It's your it's your commercial. You get free airtime. Um, the Republicans could always go live from Clint Eastwood House, uh, his house, and have him in a chair. That would be perfectly safe for COVID nineteen. It'd probably be riveting television again eight years later. The the chair part two. Who knows? But in all seriousness, Tim, Catherine did mention something important. We talked about this during the week. Looking at the protest, and we're talking about even if it is people expressing their anger, their frustration, a completely First Amendment appropriate test. It seems like if you want to take it to people in power and people that just aren't getting your message, Going to the site of the RNC, and in some cases, a lot of these folks, I think they may want to go to the DNC too because, you know, they just, anybody that's in power, but particularly the RNC, they want to put that anger and frustration on display. Would that make the RNC leaders, the ones that probably get it more than Trump, um, more likely to say, hey, maybe that we're getting a break here and we can go virtual and avoid this scene like 1968 in Chicago? No, because Donald Trump runs that party totally, and Donald Trump wants a wide-open convention. He has made that abundantly clear, and he did it loudly and out in public where, you know, nobody could come back and do something else. Um, I, I... he has thrown the party into a tizzy, though. I tell you that. Uh, I know that I read this week that state chairmen have told delegates that for now they should hold off purchasing plane tickets to Charlotte because they, they don't know where they're going to go now. I mean, uh, but they are going to have a convention somewhere. They may have the convention split up in several places, like has been talked about with the business end of things at Charlotte. And with the uh, more public spectacle stuff in another city, I'm thinking now my favorite is Jacksonville. Um, But there is no chance in my mind that there will be anything virtual about the Republican convention. I just don't believe Donald Trump will allow it. I don't believe they'll allow anyone to wear a mask. And I don't think they're going to observe social distancing. He wants a mass throng there for this huge coronation. And that's what he wants, and that's what he's going to get in some form or fashion. Okay, Catherine, let's say they have the business end of the convention, maybe the the big uh, roll call vote, and then a lot of the procedural things, they discuss the platform in Charlotte, you know, the nuts and bolts that's not, frankly, real exciting. And then some other city, be it Jacksonville, be it Miami, be it, you know, Two Sheep, Wyoming, uh, wherever, you know, they'll take him, maybe that pool in the Ozarks. Um, You know, that's where Donald (laughs) Trump, Melania Trump, Jr., Ivanka, uh, Mike Pence, the whole crew, uh, Tom Cotton, you know, he's got to be there after this week. They all give the speeches, and that's the real sizzle. If you're a delegate, where do you go? <laughs> Question. I think you have to go to the business end. I mean, that's what you were elected to do. Mm-hmm. As a, 
as a delegate, you're elected to, you know, vote and participate in the process. Um, but that's an interesting point that if uh, if the president is looking for, you know, a big um, crowd and, um, you know, a big rally kind of situation, then it's going to be kind of hard to do it in two places because you're not going to have all those people. But they'll, they'll well, he'll have his out. usual they, crowd show up. Um, you'll have the T-shirt well, and the MAGA hat go- crowd show up at his events. Yeah, mm. and and yeah. they could also force all the delegates and everybody in the business thing into some arena and then have it all um, piped in on giant screens so that they can go back and forth between the live event with the president and the gathering of the delegates. Yeah. I just think and actually, I don't think, Yeah. And I'll say this. I mean, this is putting aside, let's say everybody's virus free throughout the nation. I do think it would be interesting if you did have a convention in like three or four cities, not a traditional convention. You might have the business end and probably the main event, your presidential nominee in the big place that you choose the convention site. But if you sent the VP nominee and your keynote speaker and maybe one of the former presidents, he ain't going to get that this year. Um, But if you took some big speakers and you put them throughout the nation and let folks into other places, that could be a big boon for you, and that might be a model for the future. Here's what's going to be interesting, I think. Let's say – They do the business in Charlotte. All the delegates, all the people that run these county and state parties have to go to Charlotte to, uh, you know, fulfill their contract. Trump has his in Mobile, Alabama, at that stadium he loves so much, uh, down there where they play the senior ball. And that's where he has all the the family um, do their speaking. All those 2024 hopefuls, Tim, don't they all go to Charlotte? And the Charlotte Convention becomes the uh, cattle show for the next election, putting together the pieces of the Republican Party after Donald Trump. I think the business end of the thing is going to be done in Charlotte for contractual reasons. I believe that the minor and medium speakers are going to be there in Charlotte as well. But that main event, I'm still holding to Florida, and I'm going to tell you why. We're a political show here. When they first selected Charlotte, North Carolina looked like an electoral threat there for Trump. And I think it kind of still is. But Florida has emerged as even more of a threat because of the number of electoral votes that it has. And Trump has not been doing very well there in the polls, and he has just got to win Florida. So I'm saying, I I bet right now, if if you put all the Republican National Committee members hooked up to a lie detector test, and they had to tell the truth, they'd say, you know what, we wish we could have a do-over here, and we wish we could have chosen Jacksonville 
or Orlando or something like that as our spot because I I, I think he's going to have to make a big splash and a big presence in Florida. And what better time to do it than the night he delivers his acceptance speech, uh, you know, in maybe Jaguar Stadium or in the Gator Bar or somewhere there in that area or somewhere in Orlando where there's big venues as well. But I I believe that they're going to have to go there. What do you think? Well, I I do think you're right about Florida. I don't think it's going to be Jacksonville for a few reasons. Um, One reason is uh, it's owned, I believe, by the NFL owner there, and I don't think the NFL wants to do with Donald Trump. Um, Also, they they have been filming his, the guy that owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, actually owns a wrestling federation that's on TNT that's really doing well for that station. They film it from that facility um, all the time, so they probably don't want to mess that up. So he'll probably try to push it away. But here's why it's going to be in Miami, and this is the real reason, because if it's in Miami, Donald Trump can make money off of Mar-a-Lago. He can have people stay there. He can have the federal government pay for a lot of security, you know, to Mar-a-Lago. Shoot, if he could do the speech there and then get all the improvements made on the RNC's dime, probably do it. But I think this is his excuse to grift off the Republican Party one last time. Catherine, (laughs) your call on where this thing will be. Uh, Well, I've thought thought that all along, that he would try to – do it as close to Mar-a-Lago as he could so that he could um, both, uh, you know, nick us for all the money and uh, not have to, you know, mix with the people. He can go home at night, even yeah. though it is I don't know. Sleep in his own bed. Or helicopter. Yeah. I don't know. Miami is a very democratic city. You want to protest, you might be making one to order right there. Number two, Jacksonville's the largest city in Florida. Number three, it has more of a conservative bent to it, which would be right up his alley. Orlando would make better sense than Miami. I know, though, I know Donald Trump does not always do the politically, you know, astute thing to do. But if I were advising him, I tell him, do not go to South Florida for this thing. Stay up in the northern part of the state. You do not want to rile those South Floridians up to go out and vote in mass against you in November. But, you know. Yeah, what's weird, well, though, is, is Miami, you think of as a Democratic city, but it has a Republican mayor. It does, but he's uh, his father was the mayor. He's a very moderate man. He's very popular in the Hispanic community. He's not your typical uh, GOP guy in the modern era. Yeah. Well, and, and one thing to think about with Jacksonville, it is um, probably when you look at it, its city limits are so big, it takes in a ton of the suburban area, whereas most places mm-hmm. that would be the suburbs in another place. And that's also why it becomes the largest because that's such land size. It takes it in. That's always so tricky because when you look at just like, say, the city of Atlanta, the population is much smaller than a a lot of large cities. You start counting the metro footprint, Atlanta is one of the top ten largest cities in America. Um, So that's a demographic, geographic uh, thing that's important to think about. But, hey, it won't be our call for sure. So we'll just have to wait and see what they do. And, of course, 
there'll be more days to discuss the Democratic convention as well. But until then, it's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. Night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has-